You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. chapter 3. I'm just going to read verses 12, 13, and 14, and then we're going to open in prayer. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, as your people, we bow before your word this morning. It is our joy to hear it. It is our joy to read it and to have it. And we thank you that you reveal yourself and your will for us to us in your word. We could never hope to hear from you apart from this word. And so we say with Luther, let him who desires to hear God speak, read his word. And we come to your word this morning and ask that you would bless our time, our efforts at understanding, and our efforts to obey it by giving us the grace to do so in order that you might be glorified through us. We confess to you our need, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first went to Bible college, uh, my family would occasionally send up to the school a care package, and in the care package was usually a jar of, of sauerkraut, homemade sauerkraut or two, and a jar of pickled beans or two, and a couple jars of dill pickles. And that may make some of you cringe, but those were tastes of home for me and something that I always look forward to receiving. Usually once a semester I would get a load of that and I was the envy of every guy, other guy in the dorm who enjoyed such things. And there was one particular Bible professor there who um, I used to go over to his house and I sort of adopted him as my mentor. And his wife passed away about a month after I showed up at school and so I, I think or I assume at least that he enjoyed my company as much as I enjoyed his and he was lonely, I know, and was alone in the evenings, and so on a regular basis I would go over and visit him, and maybe I'm a little presumptuous in assuming that he enjoyed my company as much as I enjoyed his. But I would always say, Mr. Peeler, why don't I come over tonight, I'll bring a jar of dill pickles, and we'll sit down and we'll eat some pickles and some or some pickled beans, you choose. And he would choose, and I would take my jar of, of pickled or rotting, whatever it was, and we would go over and sit down at his kitchen table and and crack that open and we would begin to just visit and enjoy fellowship together and I would ask him questions and I don't know if he really suspected, although he may have suspected something was afoot, but I was sort of adopting him as my unofficial mentor. Mr. Peeler was the co-founder of the college. When I met him that year, he was 80 years old. He was still teaching. He had taught the book of Romans 60 times. He'd been teaching at the school for 60 years. Never missed a single year on staff. Taught the book of Romans 60 times, taught the book of Matthew 60 times. I took every course that I could weasel my way into, whether it was at my grade level or not, just to get into Mr. Peeler's classes. And his one of his favorite books was the book of Philippians. He only wrote one book in his life, and it was a commentary on the book of Philippians. And I have that even. It's on my shelf. It's a signed copy from him, the treasured possession. And I loved Mr. Peeler. He was a he was a genius of a man, a, a brilliant intellect. He knew the New Testament better than probably anybody else I've ever met in my life. And he had, I would suspect he had probably memorized large portions, if not entire books of the New Testament, including Romans, Philippians, 
and the book of Matthew. So one night I went over to Mr. Peeler's house and I sat down and we were eating pickled beans or sauerkraut or dill pickles or one of those things. And we were visiting and I asked Mr. Peeler a question that had been dogging my mind for a couple weeks. I said, Mr. Peeler, you've been a Christian now for 65 years. You've been teaching for 60 years at the school. You've taught through the book of Matthew and Romans 60 times. And at the, at the time I was taking Matthew class. I said, after 65 years of walking with Christ and after 60 years of teaching the Bible, do you ever get any point in your Christian life reach a level where you have learned everything there is to learn about the book of Romans or the book of Matthew or walking with Christ? Do you ever get to a point where you sort of plateau, you level out, and you realize that I have eradicated every sin in my life, there's nothing else that I struggle with, I've got victory over every potential temptation, I've reached a point now where I don't struggle with sin. I don't agonize over that. I don't struggle with laziness. You ever get to that point? Do you ever plateau? Have you ever arrived at any point in your 65 years with Christ? Now, I wanted to know the answer to that because I was at the beginning of my Christian journey. And from my perspective, he was nearing the end of his road. And I wanted to know if I'm going to serve Christ for 65 years, if I'm going to embark on this uh, on Christianity and, and devote my life to this, give my life to Christ, is there ever going to be a point where I've got it nailed, I have it nailed down, and I've arrived? I wanted to know that. Now, Mr. Peeler was a little bit farther from the end of his road than I thought at the time. He died 13 years later, by the way, just a side note. He died 13 years later at the age of 93. He was outside in the ditch behind his house, burning the grass with a rake in his hand, laboring. That was Mr. Peeler. Rumor had it, that he only slept about four hours a night, and you would never see Mr. Peeler stop. To do, the guy was going. I think he slept standing up behind a rototiller or using a hoe or a rake. I think that's when he did his sleeping. We always knew that if Mr. Peeler dies, it's going to be in the middle of doing some physical activity. He just never stopped. He finally died. The Lord took him home, 93 years old. It was just, just a couple years ago. So he looked me in the eye over his kitchen table and pickled beans, and he said... I can honestly tell you that in no point after 65 years of knowing Christ can I say that I have arrived. And he quoted to me Philippians chapter 3. He said the Apostle Paul, after 30 years of being a Christian, could honestly say, I have not obtained it. I have not been made perfect yet. And Mr. Peeler said, studying the book of Romans and the book of Matthew and teaching that every year, there has never been a year where I have not learned something from teaching the book of Romans or learned something from teaching the book of Matthew. He said, every year when I open up those books to teach them, they are as fresh as the first time I studied them. I enjoy it. I've never learned. I've never reached a point where I stop learning. There always is something new to learn. And there is never a point where you finally have victory over sin completely and it's eradicated and you don't struggle with it. Now, that may be a little bit of a disappointment to some of you. If I asked you to raise your hand, you'd say, oh, Oh, come on. Seriously, after 65 years, you finally don't get victory over sin? Isn't that a little bit discouraging? It was encouraging to me, and I'll tell you why. Because I had a sneaking suspicion, knowing Jim Osmond's heart, at least to the level that I did, I had a sneaking suspicion that if perfection was available in this life, I was still going to spend my entire life discouraged, disappointed, and frustrated that I was not able to attain it. And from all outward appearances, Mr. Peeler had no struggles whatsoever. No struggles, no temptations, no outward sin, a model of Christian character, life and living and service in every way. And I wanted to be like Mr. Peeler. But it was also very encouraging to know 
that after 65 years of walking with Christ, I was never going to reach a point where I say, I've got this nailed down. I need nothing else. I've got it nailed. I know Him. I know this Bible as well as I could ever hope to know it. There's nothing else to learn. I have arrived. I was somewhat encouraged by finding out I'm never, ever going to arrive. Well, that's the same sort of encouragement that the Apostle Paul offers to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look. These are very familiar verses to you, I'm suspecting. You've probably seen them on a Christian athlete's website or a boxing trunks or a T-shirt or a billboard or a church sign or something. This idea of pressing on toward the goal, it's an athletic metaphor. They're familiar verses to you, but I hope that as we unpack them, you'll even appreciate these verses even more. Just a couple of notes about this next section of verses, because although it is set off with a paragraph, at least in my translation, verse 12 marks the beginning of a new paragraph, I don't want you to think that the Apostle Paul is changing gears radically from what he has been talking about. He's going to expand upon this a little bit and clarify what he's been addressing. So let me just give you a couple of general observations about verses 12 through 14. The first, by way of reminder, I don't want you to forget in your mind that as we're working our way through chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is not done talking about the false teachers that he started addressing back in verse 2. Do you remember that? Beware of the dogs, the evil workers, the false circumcision, those mutilators of the flesh. Beware of those. He begins chapter 3 with that warning to beware of these men who would lead them astray. And then you look down at verse 18 and you see that the Apostle Paul is not done talking about false teachers. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Those are the same false teaching, dog, false circumcising, mutilators of the flesh that he addressed in verse 2. So sandwiched in between those two warnings is all of this instruction, all of this correction, and the Apostle Paul, even in verses 12 to 14, as you're going to see, is addressing some of these false doctrines of these false teachers. The second general observation that I want you to notice is that the Apostle Paul is employing a sports metaphor. I think the Apostle Paul was a sports fan. He uses sports metaphors throughout his writing. You see it in the book of Acts. You see it throughout Paul's writings. The metaphor of a soldier, the metaphor of a runner, the metaphor of somebody competing in games. He was an athletic individual, and he pulled a lot of athletic terminology and metaphors and figures of speeches and analogies, and he employed them in giving instructions to Christians. And so he likens running the race to the Christian life. And so since he's using a sports metaphor for the Christian life and the metaphor of running, which I think was a favorite of the Apostle Paul's, he uses that one a lot, that of running a race, Notice, let your eyes glance over verses 12, 13, and 14, and notice all the verbs. This is a very active passage. Notice the verb obtained, become perfect, press on, lay hold of, was laid hold of, I do not, regard myself, laid hold of, one thing I do, forgetting, reaching ahead, pressing on, toward the goal. Do you notice that activeness? All those verbs, it's just, and some of these things, friends, they're so loaded, and they're so vivid, and they're so colorful, The whole passage just comes alive with all of these active verbs of this individual who is stressing and straining and running and moving toward a goal. That's the metaphor that's used. The third general observation is just about the structure, and this is going to affect how I preach the passage, so I want to let you know ahead of time. Verse 12 is a statement of fact. I have not obtained, I have not become perfect, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of. Do you notice that? Verse 13 and 14 is a restatement of verse 12, 
phrase by phrase with sort of an expansion on it. The Apostle Paul doesn't really introduce any new ideas in verses 13 and 14. He simply expands upon verse 12. Look at the beginning of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Then look at verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. Back up to verse 12. But I press on. In verse 13, he expands it by saying, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and looking forward and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. And then look at verse 12 again. That I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And verse 14 expands upon that. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there's a phrase by phrase parallelism as the Apostle Paul works his way through it. So here's how it affects how I'm going to preach. I'm going to take the first, try that again. I'm going to take an enunciation class the first part of the week is what I meant to say. I'm going to take the first phrase of verse 12 and the first phrase of verse 13 together. So we're going to take the like phrases and concepts in this passage as we work our way through sort of in a parallel fashion. And as I was studying this week, there was a really straightforward and you're probably thinking predictable and of course alliterated outline that presented itself to me. And so we're going to follow that outline. Since the metaphor is that of running the race, here are the three things that Paul gives us in the metaphor. First of all, he tells us what our mindset should be if we're running the race. Second, what our manner of running is to be, how it is we are to run the race. And then third, the mark toward which we are to run. The mindset, the manner of our running, and the mark toward which we're run. We're to know what are we to think, how are we to think, how am I supposed to run, and where do I run? Right? If I just all of a sudden shouted out to you, run! Where do I go? Which way? Which exit? Which way do I run? We want a direction. We want a mark. And so Paul gives us the mark toward which we are to run, and he gives us the manner in which we are to do our running. But we're going to begin with the mindset. The mindset of the runner. How does somebody who's going to effectively run the Christian life, do you want to, at the age of 65, be able to look back upon your life and say to yourself, Like Paul was able to say, I have fought the good faith, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. I have run my race and I have run it well and I have finished well. Wouldn't everybody here like to be able to say that? Or would you rather, I'm hoping of course not, be able to say at the end of your life, I got halfway done and I made shipwreck of the whole thing. I made a train wreck out of my Christian life. I think all of us want to be able to say, I got to the very end and I ran faithfully and I ran fully and I put forth all of my effort, and I finished well. I'm going to finish well. How about you? How are we going to finish well? Let's look at the mindset. It's the beginning of verse 12 and the beginning of verse 13. Look at what Paul says. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Verse 13 says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. I haven't obtained it yet, the Apostle Paul says, nor have I become perfect. And I do not regard myself as having obtained it yet. What is the it? What is the Apostle Paul talking about in the context? What is this thing that he can say, I haven't grasped it yet, I haven't obtained it. The word apprehended, if it's in the King James or New King James, and the word obtained or grasped it in the text is the word lambano in the Greek. And it means to reach out and to seize upon something, to grasp upon it, to acquire it, to apprehend it, to get your hands on it fully, to bring it into your possession. Paul says, I have not seized upon it yet. But he doesn't fill in what the it is. We have to supply that from the context. What is it that the Apostle Paul says that he has not yet obtained? Is it the justification of verse 9? Is he saying that he has not yet been justified in the sight of God? 
That's not it. It's something else. The clue is given in the next phrase where the Apostle Paul, a parallel phrase, says, I have not yet become teleao, perfect, perfected. I have not yet reached the goal. Now, what is the goal toward which the Apostle Paul says he has not yet obtained or been perfected? If you look back at verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, you see what the Apostle Paul is talking about is this goal of knowing Christ. Remember verse 8? The surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I think it's in verse 7. And then you get up into verse 9. I want to know Him in the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering. This was a goal toward which the Apostle Paul was striving. That of knowing Christ and gaining Christ. Paul says, I haven't become perfect. I haven't arrived. After 30 years as a Christian, when Paul writes Philippians, he's about 63, 64 years old. He got saved early in life, probably about 32, 33 years old. Very soon after Pentecost, very early in the history of the church, he has been for 30 years a Christian. For 20 of those years, he's been planning churches, doing missionary activity, writing books, preaching, teaching, counseling. He ran a Bible school for two or three years in Ephesus. He's done a lot of traveling. He's been very active, very busy. And the Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, sitting in a prison, and by this point he's only about two, maybe three years at the outside, away from his execution, and the Apostle Paul says, I have not yet arrived. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the Apostle Paul's writings, and we went through the book of Acts together, I look at the Apostle Paul's example. i got to be honest with you. I think that that is a tremendously intimidating example. Don't you think so? If there was anybody that I would think would have been able to arrive at perfection on this earth, I would think it would be Paul. He was as close to Christ-likeness as anybody else I see in the New Testament and as ever I would think anybody could ever hope to be. As close to Christ-likeness as you could get on this earth. So much so that he intimidates me. I feel I read the Apostle Paul and I think, man, I would have quit, Paul. I would have bailed right there is when I would have bailed. The stoning, I would have never got into missionary journey number two. They stoned me and drug me outside the city and left me for dead. I would have, I would have been sucking my thumb all the way back to Jerusalem, all the way back to Antioch. I would have showed up. I'd have been huddled in a corner. People would have been stroking my back and trying to console me after a journey like that, but not the Apostle Paul. I get intimidated by him. But what is his honest self-assessment? I have not yet arrived. I have not yet obtained it, and I have not yet become perfect. What did he had not yet attained? Well, we read verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and we see the things that the Apostle Paul says. He says, I've, I've forsaken all so that I could gain Christ. I have suffered the loss of all things so that I might gain Christ. And that might lead us to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, having given up everything so that you may gain Christ, have you gained Christ? What would he answer? Have you fully gained Christ? Having suffered the loss of all things, have you gained Him fully? What would His answer be? No. No. Not on this side of the veil. Not on this side of death. I might suffer the loss of all things here in order that I may gain Christ, but He had not yet fully gained all that He had in Christ. Well, Paul, since you've been justified and sanctified, and since you're being conformed to the death of Christ, And since God is sanctifying you and conforming you to the image of His Son, have you already arrived at that point? What would He say? No. I'm being conformed to the image of Christ, but have I arrived at perfect conformity to Christ and to His death and His person? Yes or no? No. 
Well, Paul, having said that you are going to be resurrected and you're going to attain to the resurrection, have you already attained to that? Have you already attained the resurrection? Yes or no? No. Friends, you realize that we don't even, all of the rewards that we get here for serving Christ and following Christ and coming to Christ and everything that God blesses us with here is just a fraction, a sliver of what awaits us for all of eternity. All we get is a shadow of that blessing and that reality here. All we get is a glimpse, a foretaste of it, just a just a sprinkling of what's going to be poured out on us for all of eternity. And you and I live in this in-between spot. This We have it, but not quite yet have it. I ask you, have you gained Christ? What would you say? Some of you want to say, well, yes, I have. And in reality, you have, but in reality, you haven't. How have you gained Christ? You have gained Christ because, listen, if you're a believer in Christ, then you are right now seated in the heavenly places in Christ, even though you're sitting here physically. You're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing that the Father will ever pour out upon you is already yours. It's yours in Christ. It's your possession. You have been given it. But at the same time, you haven't experienced all of that, have you? You haven't even experienced a shadow of it. So have you gained all of Christ? Well, yes, positionally I have, but I haven't tasted all of what I've been given. I've only tasted a foreshadow of what's going to be mine. So, have you attained it? No, in the taste what is mine sense, we have not yet attained it. We have not obtained it. We have not apprehended it. We haven't seized that. We haven't tasted that yet. That is still future. And most of the blessings that we will receive are still future. Even though we sacrifice everything here, Jesus said, he who leaves father and mother and wife and houses and lands and all that is going to receive a hundred times that when? In this age? In the age to come. Wait till eternity. That's when, that's when we get all of the full realization. When we step through the door of our death into eternity, that is when we grasp and apprehend the fullness of what we've been given in Christ. Paul says, I have not yet obtained it. I have not yet become perfect. Now, friends, those words ought to, for us, offer some correction primarily to two groups of people. First of all, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble again today. First of all, that should offer some correction toward a group of people in Paul's day called the Judaizers. Remember the false dogs? No, they were real dogs. The false circumcision, the evil workers, the dogs of verse 2, those Judaizers. What they were doing and one of the things that they were teaching in Paul's day was that, yeah, being believing in Christ and being a Christian is all good. That's fine. That's dandy. You've got that and that's good. But if you want to be perfect... If you want to really attain, if you want to really reach to the full level of Christian maturity, you're not going to be able to do so apart from the Mosaic Law. That's why Paul says, having become, having begun in the Spirit, do you think you're going to be perfected in the flesh? He said that to the Galatians. Because they were teaching that we begin in Christ, but we reach our maturity and our perfection when we begin to conform ourselves to the Mosaic Law. And so the Judaizers would say, if you want to reach the next level of Christianity, you're going to have to conform yourself to the law and obey the law and uh, be circumcised, and then you will become mature. Then you will become perfect. Then you will reach that state. And friends, legalists today offer the same thing to us as Christians. We have within each and every one of us a legitimate desire to be perfect and to be holy and to be outwardly righteous. And I shared with you of my own struggles of that early in my Christian life, the desire to be outwardly righteous and to reach a state of perfection. That desire was a little bit behind what I asked Mr. Peeler when I went over and sat down and we ate beans together. 
that was one of the things that was in the back of my mind. My desire to be outwardly righteous. And in a sense, I wanted to be told that I was going to be able to attain that through all of my self-righteous active deeds. We have a legitimate desire as Christians to be righteous and holy in all of our conduct and to attain perfection. But then along comes legalist. Along comes legalist and he offers it to us and he says, buy my book, attend my seminar, get the notebook, get my newsletter, follow this chart, do the ABC, here's the formula, you follow the bouncing ball on the screen and you will attain to a level of spiritual perfection and maturity. Now, they never come right out and say, follow me and you'll be perfect, but that's implied in all of the stuff that they make you go through. Legalism offers us that opportunity to be in our own minds and in our own eyes perfect in the sight of God and in the sight of men, and that's why it's so attractive to Christians, and that's why Christians get roped into all kinds of legalistic teachings in whatever form they take. We have a legitimate desire to be holy, And the legalist comes and says, I can offer you the path to fulfilling that desire to be perfect. And we jump on it rather than realizing my perfection is not something I'm going to have here. And no amount of legalistic jumping through hoops can ever give me that perfection. There's always been, for 2,000 years of church history, there's always been groups within the church and within Christianity, many of them heretical, that offer some sort of a second level blessing to people. Back in Paul's days, it was the Judaizers. You want to really attain, get to that next level? Follow the law. Be circumcised. Obey the commandments. Obey all the dietary and ceremonial and Levitical laws. After Paul's time, it was the Gnostics who came and they said, we've got a, we've got a level of knowledge not available to everybody. Come join our group and you'll be initiated and then you'll really understand what's going on in the Bible. Then you'll really understand God's revelation. After the Gnostics, it was the Montanists, a group of people who stood up and started prophesying and speaking in tongues and saying, if you really want to know what God's will is for the church, you've got to join the Montanist movement. And all of these groups were condemned as heresies throughout church history. After the Montanists, it was the priesthood who kept the Bible from the people and said, if you really want to understand the Bible, you're going to have to come to us because we'll interpret it and tell you stupid sheep what it says. And then you can know what it says. And until you get it from us, you can't get it from anybody else. You really want to understand the Bible, you've got to become a priest. And then after that, it was other movements. Today we have movements that do that. Charismatic movement, the extreme charismatic. I'm talking about the shake and bake wing of the charismatic movement. says if you really want to attain to a level of spiritual perfection, then what you need to do is you need to speak in tongues, be baptized in the Spirit, and get a second work of grace. There's always been groups that try and divide it out and say if you really want to attain to this level, you've got to do this, and you'll be above the rest of those Christians who struggle with sin. The emergent church today tells us you just need to question everything if you're going to know anything. You can't really know anything until you question everything. And having questioned everything, you can't really know what you think you know. To be honest with you, I'm not even sure if I know what I'm questioning the right knowing anymore. That's emergent church gobbledygook. And it just keeps on going from there. Friends, do you realize that we all have the same struggle? And do you realize that there's no second work of grace? There's no second blessing There's no level that you can jump to where you're above the rest of Christians. I read my Bible and pray every day, just like the rest of you. That's it. And I'm not perfect. And do I sin? Sure I sin. I get people who say all kinds of great things about me. and I always say, if you want trash on me, I give it to you. I get all kinds of trash. I can tell you everything horrible about Jim Osmond. Of course I sin. I'm not perfect. I don't like my sin. I hate my sin. I struggle against it. I try and perfect the fear of God in holiness and walk in that way. 
but there's no second level. You don't pray a magic prayer, do a magic thing, and reach some level where you don't sin anymore. So this ought to be correction for Judaizers and elitists who think that you reach some level where you do, but it also should offer correction to people who fall into the camp of being moral or what they call sinless perfectionism. Sinless perfectionism. This is a teaching within certain groups who are within evangelicalism. We're not talking about people way on the outside. People within evangelicalism, particularly those who come from Wesleyan, Arminian backgrounds. That would be the Nazarene Church, the Church of God, the Church of Christ, Pentecostal churches, uh, Methodist churches. All are Arminian, Wesleyan background churches. Now, I'm not trying to intimidate or intimate. I'm not trying to intimidate either. I'm not trying to intimate that the, the people within those groups are not our brothers in Christ, nor would I say that about people within charismatic churches. You know me better than that. But there is a group, there is a teaching within those groups that's very prevalent that teaches that there can be a point in our Christian life where by a work of God and a work of His grace, we become instantly perfect. And we don't sin anymore. Instantly perfect. Mr. Peeler told me about a prayer meeting he was in where he used to always tell us, when, and he'd tell us this in class, when you're in class and you're looking forward during a prayer meeting and somebody stands up to offer a testimony or prayer request, you don't, you leave your rubber neck at home. You never turn and look around because everybody always has a habit of turning to look at other people. He said, leave your rubber neck at home. And that was his principle. So he said that he was sitting up towards the front of this prayer meeting and a man at the back stood up and this man said, I want to praise the Lord that I have not sinned for the last 17 years. And Mr. Peeler said, I had to, I had to turn around and I had to see the face of this guy. I had to know who had actually said that. And so he turned around and he looked. Can you imagine living with somebody as your spouse who doesn't think that they've sinned for 17 years? Here was the Apostle Paul, almost 65 years old, as outwardly righteous and conformed to the image of Christ as I think you could hope to be by this point of his life here on earth. And he says, I have not yet obtained. Well, this group, you say, do these, these people really honestly believe that you can reach a point where you don't, you don't sin anymore? Sure they do. I have two volumes on my shelf in my office, a contemporary Wesleyan theology, a two-volume theology set. So I opened it up to the chapter on sinless perfectionism, and I kind of glanced through, and I saw how they argued for this, and they promote this. And it's true, they do believe this. They do promote this. You say, how do they, how do they get away with that? Well, I'll tell you what the perspective is, and, and here it is. They make a distinction between sins and mistakes. Okay? A sin is something that you think through and ponder ahead of time. You know it's sin. You understand it's sin. You go through the process of thinking it through and you do it anyway. A mistake is something you do without realizing that you did. That had you realized you were doing it and thought it through first and did it, it would have been a sin. But since you didn't premeditate it and think it through first and you just found yourself doing it, it was merely a mistake. So when you pull out in front of me in traffic and I lose my temper and say all kinds of horrible things about you and your character and your looks and the car that you're driving, then I realize that what I just did was that a sin or a mistake? Mistake. And I get short with my wife and yell at my kids, is that a sin or a mistake? It's a mistake. See how perfect I could be if I just moved the goalpost like that? And then if I honestly believed that, I would start to realize I wasn't as big of a sinner before I came to Christ as I thought I was. Because back before I came to Christ, there was a whole load of stuff that I never even thought about doing, never even realized was sin. I just did it. Now come to find out all those were just mistakes, not sins after all. 
but you can't move the goalpost like that. The goalposts are the goalposts. And how far short do we fall? The Apostle Paul knew that. You know what Mr. Peeler told me? He said, the older I get in Christ, and the more I walk with Christ, the more aware I am of my own sin. He said, I am more aware of my sin today than I was 65 years ago. Can you not relate to that? I've been walking with the Lord for a lot of years now. And I start to, I couldn't do the math in my head that quick. I've been walking with the Lord for several years now. And I'll tell you something now. I realize today things that I do and that I think and that I am that are sinful that I never realized 10 years ago and 20 years ago. Because the more I walk with Christ, the more I realize I am not perfect. But friends, that is the proper mindset. You have to have that humble mindset that I am not perfect and I have not yet attained. That's why the Apostle Paul says, I have not yet become perfect. And brethren, I do not regard, that word means to think or to dwell upon, I do not regard myself as having obtained it yet. Now you might look at the Apostle Paul and say, well, Paul, you may not think that you have obtained it yet, but I have. Now see, those those who, and this was in my contemporary Wesleyan theology, those who teach that you can arrive at a, a point through some experience, uh, some second grace work of the Spirit, believe that since it's God's grace that does this to you, you can't boast in it. I ask myself, how do you get to the point of saying, I have not sinned for 17 years and making that sound humble? How do you say that without boasting? How do you say, I have arrived at perfection without boasting? Even if it was God's grace that got you to that point, you are now maintaining that point. How do you say, I haven't, I haven't sinned for 17 years without that sounding prideful? <laughs> That's almost unthinkable. Paul says, I, I haven't obtained it yet. I don't regard myself as having arrived yet. I don't think of myself in those terms. Somebody else may say to Paul, well, maybe you don't think that, but you're just a very zealous very humble servant of Christ. Maybe that's your own subjective self-assessment. But me, on the other hand, Paul, we know that we can obtain perfection. We can obtain our goal. We can know Christ fully. We can reach a point where we don't sin anymore. But this is not just Paul's own self-effacing humility, his own sort of subjective self-assessment. This is the Apostle Paul looking in light of everything he said about his justification, his sanctification, being conformed to the image of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the righteousness that we have, All of that he takes into account and he says, I have not obtained it yet. There are parts of it, all of it I possess, but I have not tasted all of it. This was not just a subjective self-assessment. This is the honest, solid, serious truth of our condition. And this, my friends, is where you and I have to begin with this type of a mindset. Why would somebody who thinks they're perfect pursue perfection? Why would you chase after something you've already got? If you think you've already obtained it, then why would you pursue after it? But before you can be like Paul and say, I press on toward the goal and I strive to attain this, before you'll ever say that, you first have to have a realistic assessment of yourself and say, I have not yet arrived and I haven't obtained it and I haven't gotten there. I'm not perfect. You have to have that humbleness of mind. Some of the most incorrigible, prideful, arrogant, condescending, grating on you people you will ever meet as somebody who thinks they're perfect. 
Have you noticed that? Somebody who thinks that they never sin. I cannot imagine living with somebody who thinks they haven't sinned for 17 years. Friends, every single person in this building has sinned a number of times since you walked in that door between that moment and now. You've done it. You've thought things that you would not want to have displayed up on this wall. You have thought about things which are absolutely not related to God and to His glory whatsoever. You have had corrupt motives even sitting here while I'm preaching. And some of you have thought things about me and about the sermon and about the people around you that you would be horrified to say verbally. Say, how do I know that? Do I know, am I able to look inside of your mind and behind your eyes? No. You're just like me. Thought some of the same things sitting here listening to preachers drone on about perfection. We've all sinned and we fall short before we'll ever be willing to pursue. We have to have a right mental assessment of ourselves which says, I have not yet obtained what I am going to obtain and I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to passionately pursue it. That's the mindset. That's the mindset. Now you'll notice because you can count that we haven't yet gotten to the manner in which we run or the mark toward which we run. And we're going to deal with that next time. Start dealing with that next time. The manner in which we run. Before we run, we've got to know in our hearts and in our minds, I fall far short of the goal. I have not yet obtained. I have not yet become perfect. And now you're going to ask me, well, Jim, if perfection is not attainable in this life, why run? That's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, I don't plan on answering that, but I didn't want to throw it out. <laughs> Let's pray together and we'll look at, start looking at that next week. Father, we do thank you that you have called us to be perfect. You are perfect. You require righteousness for us to stand before you, and you provide the very thing that you have required. We thank you, Father, that we can have a right assessment of ourselves based upon Scripture, which shows us how imperfect we are, how far short of your holy and righteous standard we fall. And Lord, we ask that you'd give us the grace and encourage us to know that you have called us to this race. You have called us to pursue righteousness and holiness. You have called us to pursue perfection. And we know that one day we're going to stand in a new heavens and a new earth and resurrected bodies, completely righteous, completely perfect in every way. We long for that day. We long to be righteous and to be holy. It is our thirst of our souls to be as holy as you are holy. And we ask, God, that you give us the grace and encourage us toward that end that we might pursue it our whole lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.